In this episode, how to face your fears and overcome them through the power of travel and what was this TV host's greatest obstacle. The War Nomads Podcast. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous independent traveller. Thanks for tuning in from wherever you get your favourite pods. Hi, it is Kim without Phil by my side. Unfortunately, Phil has moved on. He's uh, left the World Nomads podcast and World Nomads, very sadly, and into a new position. Now, we did record an episode with Phil, but my microphone was so ratty that it was... It wasn't salvageable, so uh, apologies for that, but he does send you a big, 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 big wave and a big, 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 big thanks, and he'll be sorely missed. But I am here to keep the podcast moving forward toward the end of the year, and in this episode, Mike Corey. He's the host of the BBC's The Travel Show and star of the YouTube channel Fearless and Far, and he's breaking the mould. He's travelling the world, and he's filming things never filmed before. And he'll explain those. It's all in an effort to inspire people to chase their fears and lean into discomfort and find those opportunities that are hidden in the struggle. I'm sure that'll resonate with uh, quite a few of you listening. So what is it that uh, he's frightened of then? And that's such a good question because the channel is called Fearless and Far, and that is my alias. It actually used to be called Kick the Grind, and I changed that a, a few years ago to Fearless and Far because I am truly fearless. No, that's actually the, the opposite. <laughs> I, I am fearful. I'm a recovering scaredy cat. And I learned a while ago that fear was something that was controlling my life completely. And so right now I, I have a YouTube channel. Obviously, I'm a social media adventure travel influencer. I have a television show on BBC. I do public speaking circuits. My life is public speaking. But what you don't see on the surface is that I was I had a phobia of public speaking. I was blackout terrified to speak publicly for most of my life. And then through travel and through life just whipping coconuts at my head and, and making me make hard decisions, I was able to become, I feel, the best version of myself. And that was only through tackling these giant fears in my life head on. And for myself, I guess I never I never was given the tools to know how to deal with that. We all have these traumatic experience when, experiences when we're younger. We These develop up into fears and then we just kind of deal with it and we assume they're part of who we are. But I am the living, breathing definition that if you head, if you choose to head charge these fears, you can level up in ways you'd never imagine. So I'm not fearless at all, but I do really, really enjoy fighting them. And I do really, really enjoy encouraging other people to do the same. Yeah, we've got a couple of interviews coming up, actually, with people that have to conquer anxiety, for example, have headed off and and walked 3,000 kilometres over, you know, either from the North Island of New Zealand to the South Island or it, it, do you suggest, like that takes real guts, doesn't it? And as someone with anxiety, when you are crippled with a fear, <clears throat> put yourself to put yourself out there, it takes guts, doesn't it? But are you saying it's worth it? Yeah. Well, the thing is, it does take guts. But I, I, I guess I realized that I was so paralyzed by fear because I didn't understand it. Like, I didn't know what was happening. And there's that old cliche saying that there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And you kind of just brush off the, the these sayings like, uh, you know, you've heard them before. You, but really, if you think about it, that's kind of what anxiety is. I used to have anxiety attacks as well when it came to, to speaking in class and things during grade school. And I, I realized after that, I would have this feeling, this physical reaction. My heart would start beating. My palms would start sweating. I would start shaking. And then I would be like, oh, no, it's happening. 
And then I was scared of being scared. So they would just burn up in this giant spinning wheel of fire and take me off a cliff, basically. And so if, if you and what I try to do on the, on, on the channel and my message is try to disassociate the reaction of fear to fear. And when you do feel this feeling, it's not, a, oh, my God, I'm so scared. What am I going to do? Oh, my God, I'm getting scared again. It's cool. OK, hi, we're back, old friend. I know you're trying to here to save me, but listen we can walk along this path together, but I'm not going to listen to you. And so approaching this feeling that wells up inside you this way changes your whole relationship with the feeling because at the end of the day, it is a, it is a relationship and it's something that's as human as breathing to us. And especially um, when these people who have anxiety, like I, 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 I did, it's like, if you, if, if you can disassociate this thing you're afraid of, and also this feeling, I think that's step one. Number two is understanding, learning about it. Let's say you have a fear of spiders. Do you think someone who grew up in a household where their dad had a pet tarantula and every weekend they went and they lovingly fed it crickets and, you know, they learned about how interesting spiders are. No, that's not the case. You know, someone threw a spider on you when you were six or chased you around the house, your brother or your sister, whatever it was. And then you develop this phobia, or maybe you just watched a bunch of scary spider movies. And so you just don't understand how spiders work. You don't understand any interesting thing about you. The only data points you have in your head are these horror movies, basically horror situations. And I think the same thing applies with travel and a lot of these locations that people call tourist unfriendly, uh, where all the only data points we have of the Middle East or whatever it be are these negative things we see in the news and the media. They're not our experiences. They're not the experiences of a friend or a family member. They're just all these random data, data points thrown at, thrown at us like darts and they stick in and that's what we remember. And I think with, with some of these phobias, like my public speaking, for example, I wasn't born with a public speaking phobia. I was in grade uh, four and I was, I had a, <laughs> I had a hamster that died <clears throat> and I was brought up in front of the class by the teacher to explain to the class why I was looking sullen. And so she made me and I was in French immersion and she made, she forced me in my French first year in French immersion to explain why I was sad in front of 30 people when my hamster just died. And she kept them pushing and pushing and pushing. I didn't know how to explain, excuse me, my hamster just died. You learn how to say, where is the mailbox, sir? Excuse me, how do, how, how do I find the bathroom? You don't learn the vocabulary how to explain a, she a was dead ex- hamster. She was expecting and, you to do this in French. Yes. And so I would like, my hamster is and like, en français, en français. Mon hamster is more. Anyway, it was just, and there was a couple instances during that year that I was, this is my introduction to public speaking. So like any, I think, malleable ball of clay at that age, yeah, you carry some baggage after that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it was because I had three or four, my first data points of being in front of a crowd, because how much public speaking are you doing at that age? Basically none. Maybe you answer a couple of math questions in a line, but yeah. So I, I carry that with me. And after a while, it's kind of, you know, balloons and festers like a wound and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it becomes a giant elephant in the back of your head. Yeah, well, we tend to, with minds like this, catastrophize things. Yeah, exactly. And I think we grew up as kids with, like, you know, monsters under our bed. And after a while, we realized, hey, you know, monsters aren't real. But those are just fears, right? That's the fear you have when you're five or six, you know, monsters. You see them on TV. And then as we grow up, those fears grow up, too, to things that are 
even more scary, like, you know, fear of commitment or fear of public speaking or fear of pick of anything. But the, the fear still comes along with us. It just changes forms as well. Let's talk about, um, and you mentioned the elephant in the room. Uh, this time we're talking about coronavirus and fear. Mm. And you know that in March when uh, the World Health, Health Organization declared it a pandemic, the world went into lockdown and it's yeah. slowly recovering in some some areas are uh, certainly not here in Australia. I can report at the time of us recording, there are only four reasons why we can lose uh, you leave our country. We're also a federation, but we've got hard closed borders, so it's just crazy. So, why are you continuing to travel despite the pandemic? And how are you doing it? Yeah, great question. So. Let me let's rewind a few months. Um, before coronavirus uh, took the world by surprise, I guess, let's say early March when things started to close down, I had already been to 11 countries this year. So my lifestyle is I travel 11 out of the 12 months of the year. Um, I've spent time between my hometown in the East Coast of Canada, uh, a small province called New Brunswick, where my family's from, and I was living in Mexico City at the time. So I kind of bounce around those if I want to settle down. But for the most part, I'm, I'm on the road like 11 months of the year. And so before March, I'd already been to 11 countries, uh, which was like Mauritania, Bangladesh, uh, Oman, all these other places that generally aren't on the normal tourist path. And so when coronavirus hit, I was with my girlfriend and we were actually camping on the island of Socotra in Yemen. <laughs> so not exactly the, the easiest and most accessible place, probably one of the most, most remote places on the planet, actually. Um, Socotra is like this. It's like Madagascar or it's like the Galapagos, this island jewel in the middle of the ocean where most of the animals are endemic. They're only found there. The most iconic one is the dragon blood tree, which is a strange, like upside down cactus baobab type thing that if you cut the bark, it bleeds red sap, like dragon blood. And it, it is an alien landscape, a beautiful place, but very remote and very little cell reception. These are the types of places you like to visit, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I still think there's places we can truly explore and be one of the first there. Uh, and that was one of those places. Um, anyway, and so we were there and I got a scratch at the tent at like 3 a.m. And uh, there was our guide saying, hey, a guy just came on a motorbike saying that flight you were supposed to take in two weeks actually is leaving in three hours. And if you're not on it, you're going to be stuck there. <laughs> and I had just broken my laptop and I had lost my wallet and I was there with my girlfriend. And actually, she ended up staying there for four months because I was the next opportunity to leave the island. <laughs> and I actually went back to Canada. Uh, and was in lockdown for for the coronavirus. So she had this really amazing desert island fantasy getaway. Uh, well, amazing. I mean, you sleep in a tent the entire time, and there's not much, but that's what she likes to do. So why did she do that uh, and not not go with you? Um, because she couldn't come to Canada. Number one, we had closed our borders to, to anyone but non-residents. Uh, sorry, anyone but residents. I couldn't go to Poland, uh, and she she doesn't really she she she's from Poland, but she used to live in the UK, and uh, her home's on the road, and so for her home was staying in Socotra, <clears throat> and she has her own story, uh, maybe for another day, but it was quite incredible staying there for four months, and it's all on YouTube as well. If you type in uh, her name's Eva Zubek. Anyway, um, so I went home and I spent. The, those three, four months in uh, East Coast of Canada and like the rest of us, just try to understand the world and it was difficult. And then uh, in early July, the EU opened up to Canadians. And so again, being Canadian was a bit of a blessing because Americans still can't uh, leave their country for the most part. And so then the debate happened in my head where it's like, what is, what is essential travel and what is non-essential travel? So for someone who gets employment through travel and 
makes has a travel YouTube channel or maybe is a blogger or or whatever, like their income is by traveling. That's kind of deemed, no, it is deemed non-essential. Or someone who has a relationship that is across borders, whether I'm dating someone from Poland or United States, it's like, is a relationship, is maintaining a relationship like that essential? Well, maybe if you're boyfriend and girlfriend, maybe not, but what if your fiance, what, you know, it starts to get a bit fuzzy with what essential is. Like coffee's not essential in the morning, but it's damn nice. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, the opportunity came to leave Canada on the 2nd of July. And so I did. And um, I, I think I had two ways to approach it. I could be kind of do it secretly or I could do it in an unapologetic way. And so that that's what I did. I made a video about why I'm choosing to go to Europe as a tourist. Uh, so non-essential and also a guide and showing the experience and some difference along the way. And so I really tried to embody that, knowing that it was going to have some controversy. And I'm sure there's listeners now who um, would think that's okay, or maybe not think that's okay. Maybe think it, it was a it was a reckless thing. But at the end of the day, I thought about what are the most important things, and one of them is if I am choosing to travel because I deem it essential. Um, making sure I'm not tracking dirty feet around the world, you know, making sure that I'm not taking the, the uh, being a potential carrier, bringing it into small communities, making sure I'm following the rules. I, I came to Europe. I quarantined for two weeks, even though I didn't have to. It wasn't required for Canadians to do so. Um, but I thought, hey, you know what? It's not a bad idea. Plus, I've got some work to do as well. And so I went above and beyond what I was required to do. And so far here, I've been to seven countries since uh, I left in early July. So it, it's been um, it's been still you know slower pace. And I've changed my travel style a little bit. I'm not visiting indigenous tribes in the in the forest anymore. But you can still you know see some sights, and you have to wear a mask. And there's some other things you have to keep in mind as well. But for the most part. The world is continuing continuing to click, and no one's come after me with, with pitchforks yet. So uh, things have <laughs> been going pretty well. Well, yeah, during the the sort of height of the pandemic, we were sharing stories of people, much like your girlfriend, who I'd love to hear her story about, and I will um go to YouTube. Um, we were sharing stories about you know travelers that had been stuck and had to get home, industry experts, company directors, you know, all those that have been affected by the pandemic. But now we're switching our conversation to actually, well, okay, we're going to live with this for a, a bit and how do we yeah. travel through it? So you've done that, even though, you know, we say you're fearless, you're obviously not rec- reckless. What tips would you give to people listening to this on how to do this right so that yeah. you're not being reckless? Yeah, and that's it. And I think the number one thing is if you do decide to travel, that is a great thing that you can do. But at the end of the day, if you want to choose to be you know, take a small risk with your life. I think it's a bit of a small risk than, than we're blowing it up to be. But if you're choosing to take that risk, don't put that risk on other people. You know what I mean? Um, so again, being cautious and above and beyond and knowing that if you're a foreigner in a place, at some point, people might not. There's only really one situation we were in, um, in a country in Europe where we were in a small town. We show up with a license plate that wasn't from there both speaking English and they were not so happy to see us. (laughs) We try to get a restaurant. And so for the most part, locals uh, have been very accepting, but sometimes cautious. But again, if you're from a small little community and a car rolls in from far away, I I don't blame people for being a little bit cautious. So just keep that in mind and realizing by going a bit above and beyond, even if you don't agree with it all, it doesn't really matter. Agree with the fact that you are an ambassador for your country. And this is just travel advice all of the time, you know, not necessarily during Corona. 
you're an ambassador for your country. You're an ambassador for your language, your skin color. People make an impression when they see you. So this is a very important thing um, now. As far as traveling with coronavirus, honestly, it, it, I, I thought it was going to be more inconvenient. I, I did a, a vlog series, what it was like to travel as one of the very first tourists from Canada to the EU. And I documented the whole thing, the differences along the way. Um, you wouldn't, you, you would think it would be a little bit more stringent, but with the temperature checks and some questionnaires, it really hasn't been that bad. And even traveling to seven countries um, since being able to get into the EU, there's not really much borders in between, so you can travel freely. Um, when I flew to the UK, I, 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 I um, have a BBC television show as well called The Travel Show. And I had to fill out a form, also had to uh, wear a mask basically in any enclosed space, which is the same here in Europe as well. And um, again, be a little bit conscious of people. I've given so many elbow bumps uh, <laughs> since I've been here. It's, it's kind of wild. But the hardest thing I think with travel is I didn't realize how much I relied on my facial expressions to communicate when I can't speak the language. And it, it feels a bit soulless at times when you're, I'm in Romania now and you're, you're meeting people who don't speak English or French or Spanish or any language you speak, and you have to try to you know, smile and make an impression. I realize I rely on my smile a lot to make an impression. And I guess you can kind of see if someone's smiling with their eyes, but it's, it's not exactly the same thing. Um, you know, and it's really hard. It's even harder to communicate when you can't see someone's mouth. So even if they're just trying to speak English or you're trying to speak Romanian or French, it's harder to understand. And so it is a little bit inconvenient in, in that way. Yeah. But for the most part, it's been pretty much business as usual, like a, like a masked business as usual. Um, again, and I always try to be a bit, bit more cautious than the average, the average person, only because knowing people know that I'm, I'm not from here. Okay, so you've had experiences living with remote tribes. You said during, um, you know, since the virus, you're unlikely to go into an Indigenous community. What aspects of travel or what aspects of the world stopping have you enjoyed seeing that you hadn't thought of before March? I guess I think there's a really interesting opportunity now for the next um, year or two, or who knows how long, to see some of these places that were previously so clogged with tourism be almost empty and maybe seen how they should be seen or originally seen a hundred years ago. I mean, it's very unprecedented and I guess for worse, not better, the world has, has changed, but, but imagine seeing Machu Picchu with very few people there now. I mean, before the coronavirus hit, there was 2,500 people a day on this mountaintop and a small little sacred site right so i think in certain parts of the world i haven't been to paris to see the eiffel tower or italy to see you know the trappy fountain or anything but i would imagine it's a one once in a lifetime opportunity now to see some of these world attractions even if it's the cathedral in some unknown town in in europe these places aren't going to be clogged with tourists it's going to be locals and um yeah and, and maybe some local tourists but i think there's a really interesting opportunity there if people do choose to think about traveling at this time what what are you what are you planning to do next yeah well for me like i said i i've really enjoyed in the past visiting some of these these communities that were uh, relatively untouched by tourism and finding these strange shamans and, and people in the forest or on the mountains and that's going to go on hold for a, a while i think there's still room to be able to do that so for example i'm getting a coronavirus test tomorrow and i think as long as i keep myself tested and wear a mask and i can prove 
to myself and others that I I am uh, COVID free, then I think there is space at some point to be able to consider doing this type of stuff again. Right now, um, I'm fine finding some other things. For example, a couple of weeks ago, we did some survival training in Poland. And I think in the future, it'll be a, a bit more of that uh, coming up. So I know I, I visited some abandoned castles and palaces here in Europe. There's some incredible ones scattered across Germany and Poland and, uh, and Romania. And the abandoned exploration, Urbex, is pretty COVID friendly for the most part, <laughs> as well as wilderness survival training and doing some some treks. So right now we've been planning some more adventures like that. And so we can kind of find where the world is and where we are in this in this COVID travel situation. Well, we've got a previous episode we did on Urbex. So that's one for the show mm. notes as well. So just two final questions. Do you have uh, a travel quote or mantra that you subscribe to? Yeah, um, I guess there's lots of quotes, but there's a few about fear that I really enjoy. And one of them is by um, Joseph Campbell. And it's the cave you fear to hide, the the cave you fear to enter hides the treasure that you seek. And that is, I think, a beautiful quote about fear and about my story and about anybody who has overcome a difficulty in their life and then been able to live the best version of their life is that the darkest crevice in your life that you're scared of, if you decide with shaking hands and a beating heart and sweat on your brow to hold a lantern up into there and just explore it and get it out and, you know, do the thing you're scared of and unearth, whether it be a problem in your life, something you're avoiding, it's always a solution, right? Procrastination or uh, something you've been dreading to do, you know, if you just go in there and do it, then oh my God, uh, wild things can happen. Yeah. And so that's where that quote comes from. Uh, and I mean, whether there's a dragon in there or your deepest, darkest fear, it's kind of the same thing. It's this monster you're, you're afraid to face, but we all know that facing it is uh, is the key. Well, maybe we don't all know that, but I- I'm here, I'm living proof that it is. And there's so many stories and great quotes similar to that, that if you go in there and find that dark place and illuminate it, um, the, the world is your oyster after that. Well, you are lucky to be alive. Some of the stuff that I've seen you do, but that's another story. <laughs> um, uh, but you said it earlier. There's a there's a line between reckless and scary, right? So dangling your feet off a bridge with no safety harness could be considered reckless, right? And there's a lot of things, you know, driving drunk is is reckless. But there's things that if you tr- if you train your body, train your mind, and you learn about them, like you wouldn't say someone who's got done 500 sky skydives and goes out and does a skydive is as reckless as someone who just jumps off a cliff with a parachute, right? There's training that goes involved that, that that's involved with a lot of these things and, tra- you know, traveling, you know, traveling to uh, pick a country that's maybe not, not as like we were in Mauritania. Okay. So Mauritania is not, not a destination. It's a small uh, Saharan company, well, actually a big Saharan uh, country in West Africa, not really tourist friendly. The people there are so friendly, but you ha- kind of have to know how to navigate a cultural situation, right? Again, if if you don't do that, you can probably end up in a little bit of trouble there. But again, having traveled for all these years now, almost a decade, I, I feel like these countries that people would disregard can be quite beautiful, safe, enjoyable travel experiences. And it's all just knowing how to behave, you know, don't walk around in a bikini, you know, for example, and, and don't shove a camera in a police officer's face, things you might do in, in our home countries that are, would get you in a lot of trouble there, right? And so I kind of approach it the same way. If you understand the situation through experience, through knowledge, through research, then reckless can can turn into, uh, you know, you're not going to get rid of the risk completely, but life always has risk. Life is a dance with risk. Sitting on your couch your entire life still has a lot of inherent risk to it, right? So 
I think that's how you have to approach it. If you spend time, over-prepare for these situations, learn about them, then you can dance with risk in, in a very beautiful way. I mean, God, driving's a risk. We never talk about how how we're putting lives our life into the hands of everybody else we cross on the highway. Like it's crazy that the driving is, I think in 50 years, we're going to look back now and be, and say this, how did we ever trust all of these people and trust ourselves to drive on the freeway? Like, is this going to, it's going to be one of those things that just seems so ridiculous in 50 years. Well, I don't want to scratch any wounds, but what was the name of the hamster? Oh, <laughs> I think it was Marty. <laughs> oh, we'll release this episode in his honor. Okay, RIP Marty. Hope you're doing well in hamster heaven. Well, if it wasn't for him, you may not have overcome this fear. He was a martyr, I guess, in a certain (laughs) way, wasn't he? (laughs) Marty the martyr. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Mike, thank you so much. Really enjoyed talking about uh, chasing your fears with you. And um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. It's great. Thanks. I I had a great time today. It was a fun chat. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed it too. All the links you need to follow Mike will be in show notes. And uh, remember, I'm still on the road. I'm in Outback Australia now. Last time I chatted with you, we were in South Australia, but they had a COVID lockdown and we kind of ran the gauntlet through to the New South Wales border and back in uh, Broken Hill, which I've told you about, the gateway to the desert, where it is very, very hot. 43 degrees Celsius, which I do believe is just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So think of me in the van, won't you? If you would like to share your story with me, email podcast at worldnomads.com and do make sure that you continue to rate, share and subscribe from wherever you get your favourite pods. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.